Hello! Hi! Welcome to Inspired... The Tired the Podcast! I'm Haley Schrager. And I'm Kayla Muldoon. And we're... We're doing it! We're doing it! We're doing the thing! Welcome. So Inspired But Tired is a weekly podcast that's going to inform you about some really awesome people in the world that have done awesome things that maybe you've never heard of throughout history. I sure as heck didn't hear about them in my high school history class. Oh, I absolutely haven't heard of them in a college history class. Did I take a college history class? I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) We're surrounded by constant negativity, the world and the news, and it's exhausting, and I'm tired all of the time. I'm Um, utterly exhausted. it's just nice to... You're allowed to take a step back from it every once in a while for your own sake and... It's good to be informed, but it's not good to carry it around with you at all at all times and for it to start affecting your own personal life, which I feel like for me, at least these pa- this past oh. year has been something that I've Absolutely. noticed in myself and in the people close to me. It can really, it really gets me down sometimes. Yeah. So it's, we want to make sure that we remember mm-hmm. and that other people remember that, hey, good things have happened in the world and there are good people that exist and have existed and they're still happening in the world and yeah so uh i think that's all yeah that week we'll start off with a piece of good news from the week or from you know more recent Mm -hmm. time things that yeah things that are just happy yeah because you don't need any more negativity in your life it's 2019 we're not here for the negativity. We're here to tell you good things and that you're amazing and about other amazing people. Exactly. And two, guess what? Inspire you. Okay. Do you want to do your good news first? Sure. Okay. Um, so this one's a little old. It's from November. But so this takes us to Harvard University. So nearly 40 of Christine E. Guillaume's peers elected her editor of the Harvard Crimson's 146th Guard. The Harvard, the Harvard Crimson is their newspaper making her the third black president and the first black woman to lead the organization since its founding in 1873. And she said to the New York Times, which is where I got the article, I will post the source on our Facebook. Yeah, we'll post all of our sources, sources there. Quote, if my being elected to the Crimson presidency as the first black woman affirms anyone's sense of belonging at Harvard, then that will continue to affirm the work that I am doing. Wow. Good for her. I mean, took way too long. I'd say, but good for her. And she's only 20. She's young than us. Yeah, she's going to do great things. Great. Okay, well, my good news of the week happened just a few days ago. Ooh. And it's that an 11-year-old boy from Minnesota saved a man twice his weight from drowning. Wow. Yep, the boy had recently completed a series of swimming classes, and he ended up jumping into the pool to save a 34-year-old man who had become unconscious it was the bottom of their complex's swimming pool, so kind of a, a universal mm-hmm. pool for the condo or the apartments where they were living in. And he just felt compelled to jump in and try to save him, even though he was obviously bigger than him. And wow. he was able to end up just dragging him up by the arms, and then the adults that were around the pool resuscitated him in like three minutes. So he is totally fine. Oh my goodness. All thanks to a little 11-year-old boy who took swimming classes. Look at that. And had the courage to do it. Yeah, wow. That's I mean. You'll also notice that I say wow a lot in right. this podcast. We're doing our 100% best to keep it as clean as possible. You can listen with your kids, with your mom, with your grandma, with your dog, everyone. Because so, we want everyone to feel positive and to hear about these amazing people. And to be inspired. 
So in lieu of <laughs> bad words, we're going to say things like wow a lot. So sorry about and my awesome. Owen Wilson impression. <laughs> but what a mighty fine what it is. <laughs> uh, who goes first? Um, I was thinking we could do, well, this doesn't really pertain to mine now, but originally I was thinking we could take the first letter of the last name of our person. Okay. And whoever came first alphabetically would go first. But my, my person doesn't have a known identity. Ooh. So it's really a number. So I feel like I'm cheating by saying to do that because that means I get to go first. So. Okay. So. Should, should I just, should I just go first? I, what do you want to do? I'll go first if that will not make you sad. Oh, it will not make me sad okay. at all. I'm ready for a story. Keep it positive. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the person that I chose this week is Agent 355. Do you, have you ever heard of Agent 355? I have heard of 007. Okay, not the same person, but <laughs> good to know. So, Agent 355 is still an unidentified person. The identity of Agent 355 is not still known for sure. Oh. However, Agent 355 was believed to have been the codename of a female spy during the American Revolution. Ooh. Uh, a spy part of the Culper Ring. And the Culper Ring operated from 1778 to 1780 in an intricate network from British-occupied New York City to Long Island, north to Connecticut, which Ooh. is where I'm from. Oh. Shout out. <laughs> uh, so it, the, basically the Culper Ring is a group of spies. Okay. Just, cool. And that's what they called themselves. And then after Connecticut, they went west to George Washington's headquarters at Newburgh, New York. The reason Agent 355 is believed to have been a female spy is that the, the name 355 could be decrypted from the system that the Culper Ring used. They must have used, like, you know, numbers like as letters. Right. Okay. Or phrases. But it translates to lady. Ooh, okay. Yeah. And was it not common, I guess, to be a woman spy? But yeah, based on my research, that Agent 355 would have been the only female spy. Oh, wow. Okay. At the time. Okay, cool. Correct. Yeah. So, and now the only direct reference found in regards to Agent 355, in any of the Culper Ring's missives, was from Abraham Woodhull to George, uh, General George Washington, and Woodhull described her as, quote, one who hath been ever serviceable to this correspondence, end quote. And how do they know that was about Agent 335? 355. 355, sorry. <laughs> no. I'm that's kidding. a different person. Um, yeah, that's a different, they just, they, they say Agent 355, oh, and okay. then they say the quote. But <laughs> sorry. So there's a, there is kind of like a small theory, it's that, it doesn't have much credit, but there are a group of people that believe that Agent 355 could have just been referring to a lady who was particularly helpful for a moment of mm -hmm. their mission, as opposed to actually translating to a female spy that was working for them. Okay. But that's not really the most believed in theory. Um, there's because I like the other one better. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and even if it's wrong, that's what we're going with, so... And so the true identity, like I said, of Agent 355 is still to this day unknown, but some facts about her are clear. Okay. So she worked for, with the American Patriots during the Revolutionary War as a spy. That much we know. And she would have been recruited by Woodhull. Wonderful. So, ba ba da, gotta sing till I find my spot on the page. Okay. Because that's what we do. It's beautiful. <laughs> the way the code is constructed also indicates that she may have had some, so some degree of social prominence. So she was likely living in New York at the time, New York City, and at some point had contact with Major Jean-Andre and Benedict Arnold. So that was 
basically whoever Agent Three Five Five was is the one that uncovered Major John Andre's plan to be unfaithful and the reason that he got arrested and hanged. Wow. So Why don't we learn about her? No, because I can't. I don't know. I mean, I obviously know. that's pretty significant. I would think so. So, one person who is suspected of possibly having been Agent 355 is a woman named Anna Strong. And she was Woodhull's neighbor, so that could explain how they how knew, they knew each, each other. other. Because And also, he is known to have been of social prominence, so he would have lived in an area where other people were. A person of social prominence, I feel like, would be a really good spy. I don't know why, it just feels like, like in, in that time, like no one would really suspect when they can't you can't just go up to someone of social prominence and question them right unheard of so that could explain both the social prominence aspect and how the relationship with Woodhull. so another theory is that agent 355 might have been robert townsend's common law wife and now and that's different from a wife wife a wife wife yeah common law wife is like you don't have a marriage certificate. It's just you've been living together as it's just partners le- for legally so long. recognized. Yeah, okay. only in some states though. Okay, only some. I and I don't know which ones, but there are only some states that recognize common marriages. Okay, legit. Um, and stories about Townsend state that he was in love with Agent Three Five Five. So Robert Townsend was another spy who was known to be in the Culper ring, and he has writings about being in love with Agent Three Five Five. But the way that it's written, it's unclear if it's just that he was enthralled by them as a spy and that them being good at their job and kind of just idolizing them or if it was a true like in love thing that remains unclear could that itself have been code as well do you think what do you mean because you said in in letters that there's yeah that they have their own kind of language would him saying that he is in love or has some sort of emotional reaction attachment to agents have been written in code you mean yeah could, i think could the love thing have been code? i think everything that i talk about even like the letter to general george washington was all in their culpable ring code okay no i'm saying do you think him saying that he oh that it was a code for something else yes oh twisty turnsies i don't know could be sorry i've seen a lot of spy movies no that's, <laughs> that's i mean it could could be it could be anyone we don't know but Love i'm that. But for the sake of this podcast and my own mental state, I'm going to go with the theory that it was a woman. Oh, I, I completely agree. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just more curious about the... Yeah. Ask the questions. And no, when I have the answers, I'll give them to you. And when I don't, I'll tell you how I was wrong the next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, again, then there's also that occasional theory I brought up that there was no Agent 355, but in fact, rather just a code being used to refer to a woman in mm-hmm. a passing period of time. Mm-hmm. But I don't like that one, so I don't think that that's true. And again, most of the research I found, and like the PBS yeah. the biography, like the reliable sources, it's believed that the Agent 355 was at least an actual person, an right. actual spy. So, Agent 355 apparently was arrested in 1780 Ooh. when Benedict Arnold defected to the Loyalists. It is said that she was imprisoned on the HMS Jersey, which was a prison ship. She was arrested by the British troops? Yes. Okay. And, yes, and she was imprisoned on the HMS Jersey, and that was a prison ship where it is thought that she gave birth to a boy named Robert Townsend Jr. So if she did give birth 
to a baby boy named Robert Townsend Jr., mm-hmm. that would strengthen the theory that it was Robert Townsend's common-law wife. Now, there is record of Robert Townsend Jr. having existed, mm-hmm. but there's not necessarily evidence that there was ever a baby born on the HMS jersey or a birth certificate from that exact time or that year or that place. So they can't say for sure that's where he was born or who he belongs to. Again, it is then thought that she later died on the prison ship. However, there is some speculation to that narrative, arguing that females were not kept aboard prison ships regardless of their spy affiliation or not, or whatever they had done. Even if they had been arrested, apparently they didn't go on the prison ships. They would just go somewhere else. Yeah. Throw the women somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And again, there was not reliable records of the birth. Um, Could that have been a cause of, like, the time period more so than... Right. Okay. I would assume any baby born on any ship would have had the proper... Especially in 1780. Right. Yeah. Strengthening the theory that Agent 355 may have been Anna Strong, who was Woodhull's neighbor, is the fact that her husband, Sella, was, in fact, imprisoned on the HMS Jersey for something else. Perhaps he was also a spy. I couldn't find out for sure. Okay. I'm going to assume that that would be why. Yeah. So he, for a fact, was imprisoned on the HMS Jersey, and she was supposedly allowed to bring him food, which doesn't sound like it was a normal occurrence for wives to be visiting their Mm -hmm. husbands, but maybe there was an exception for some reason. So her presence that often on the ship might have led to word of mouth, a legend that Agent 355 was also imprisoned there. Oh, So if people... So it sounds like even other spies in the Culper Ring, Mm -hmm. and definitely the people outside of the Culper Ring, didn't know who Anna Strong... Or, excuse me, who Agent 355 was either. Right. It's not just like it wasn't recorded in history, it's that it was a secret... Yeah, it was a secret agent. Ooh. That makes it better, I think, though. Oh, for sure. I love a mystery. I love a mystery. So earlier I mentioned that Agent 355 is the one that was responsible for what ended up leading to the hanging of Major John Andre and the issues with Benedict Arnold, but I feel like I didn't explain who those people were very well. Okay. So for those of you who... And I didn't know the the facts of all this until I researched it, so... And I think most people know Benedict Arnold. Yeah, and I definitely right recognize their names, but I didn't right. know exactly what, like, the, the layer of events was. So Major John Andre was a British army officer who was hanged as a spy for the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War because he was assisting Benedict Arnold's attempted surrender uh, of the fort at West Point, New York, to the British. So Benedict Arnold was an American military officer who served as a general during the war, fighting for the American Continental Army, but defected to the British in 1780. So they kind of had a pact. Benedict Arnold was leading to it, he was going to defect to the Loyalists. He was basically going to betray the American people. And Major John Andre worked as a spy for him, kind of like a double agent sort of thing. So just to clarify, Agent 355's biggest contribution is that they outed Major John Andre. And the way that that happened is that Major John Andre was considered one of the most eligible bachelors in New York, but women were also known as his weakness. So it is believed that since Agent 355 was a woman, that she was used to ploy him and basically, you know, use him, use her womanly charm, and to get information out of him. Because again, like I mentioned, this she would have been the only female spy at the time. It wasn't like a likely occurrence. So he probably would have never suspected her, also because she would have been a social prominence. Okay. And she would have been a lady trying to woo him. So he might have slipped in information or given her access to records that he had that he would have normally been more careful about, but he didn't suspect that it would have been, you know, that she also would have been a spy. The way you 
sorry. The way that you said, like, she used her womanly wiles, it reminded me of that episode of Gilmore Girls mm-hmm. when they do the town reenactment and Kirk has to dress up in the woman costume because Lulu got sick. Yeah. <laughs> this a good image. You have to you have to go with your imagery for um, these stories. That they can get pretty dense. <laughs> so it ended up being that when the British army took to the field, it was obvious that Washington had been warned of the surprise attack that was going to occur. Mm-hmm. So by that point, Agent Three Five Five had made the Americans and Major General George Washington aware of what was going to take place. Cool. And all the secret. Reports, um, all of them ceased when Major Andre went to South Carolina in December of 1779 for the siege of Charleston. And Washington was soon complaining to his aide, Alexander Hamilton, (laughs) that the ring's information had become useless. So basically, the Culper ring wasn't providing any significant information, wasn't getting George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, anything anything that they needed up Mm -hmm. until the point right before Agent 355 outed Major John Andre and led to his hanging okay. in New York. And since we don't know for sure who she was, um, that's really all I have. But regardless of who they were, who she was, mm-hmm. I'm going to say, that is what they did. And that is a huge impact that they had. And I, for one, never learned about that. I absolutely did not. In any class. That was fascinating. Thanks. So my turn? It is your turn. Okay. So, today I'm going to be telling you about Susan LaFleche Picote. Okay. Um, my paper has glitter all over it, and I have no idea why. It's festive. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just festive. Um, she's thought to be the first Native American, not just Native American woman, but Native American, to receive a medical degree. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, she was born in the Omaha Reservation in northeastern Nebraska on June 17th, 1865, uh, youngest of five siblings. Uh, her parents were Chief Joseph LaFleche, who was also known as Iron Eyes, and his wife, Mary, who was also known as One Woman, uh, the, on the Oban Reservation. Uh, his, her father was recognized as the last chief. Of their on tribe. Of their tribe on the reservation. Wow. On the reservation. Both her parents had lived on and off the reservation throughout their lives, and her father was very concerned with assimilating into white culture. So the chief before him had a great fear of, um just being pushed out because of the Victorian era in that culture. And her father was actually quoted saying, it's either civilization or extermination. So he's saying, get with them or get going, basically? Yeah. Okay. Um, So although both of her parents understood French and English, they refused to speak any language other than Omaha. As she grew, Susan learned the traditions of her heritage, but her parents felt that certain native rituals would be detrimental in the white world. So they kept her from receiving an Omaha name and they encouraged her to speak English with her sisters and with everyone else. Hmm. She attended school on the reservation until she was 14 years old. And the school was run by Quakers. Like, like the oatmeal. Like the oatmeal. Mm, not an ad. Also not <laughs> We're an just going to talk about hey, food Quakers. the whole time. Yeah. We are. <laughs> I'm hungry. So the school was run by Quakers as a result of President Ulysses Grant's peace policy in 1868, which was set up making it look like it was there to help Native Americans, 
But in actual reality, according to Clifford Trapser, editor of American Indians and American Presidents History in 2009, in reality, the peace policy rested on the belief that Americans had the right to dispossess native peoples of their lands, take away freedoms, and send them to reservations where missionaries would teach them how to farm, read and write, wear Euro-American clothing, and embrace Christianity. If Indians refused to move to reservations, they would be forced off their homelands by soldiers. Good. Yeah. So, basically, they were forced to go to this school and learn these specific things. It was also here that a young Susan LaFleche, at just eight years old, stayed at the bedside of a sick elderly woman. They sent a messenger to the white doctor four times, and the doctor blew it off every single time, which that morning... Well, he had something better to do? It probably... Than save his dying patient? Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um... Yeah, so she stayed at that woman's side until that woman passed away the next morning. And how old was she? She was eight. Jesus. She credits it as the tragedy that inspired her to train as a physician so that she could provide care for the people that she lived with on the reservation. Yeah. She was sent to Elizabeth, New Jersey for boarding school and returned home at age 17 to teach at the Quaker Mission School for two years. While working at the Quaker School on the reservation, LaFleche attended to the health of ethnologist Alice Fletcher, who was working there. According to PBS.com, Alice Fletcher was an American ethnologist, anthropologist, and social scientist who studied and documented American Indian culture and was a leader in the movement to bring Native Americans into the mainstream of white society. So not just mm. assimilate them into white culture, but just allow them to keep yeah. their culture and yeah, just bring just them... Live in harmony. Yes. Mm. With Fletcher's urging, Susan went back east to complete her education and to try to earn a medical degree. It was super uncommon for any Victorian woman, not just a Native American woman, to go to medical school in the United States. There were only a few that would even accept women at that time. Yeah. Uh, So she enrolled in at the Hampton Institute from 1884 to 1886, which was established as a historically black college after the Civil War, but was also a hot spot for Native American students as well. The resident physician there was a graduate of the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Shout out, Pennsylvania. That's where we met. (laughs) (laughs) And encouraged her to apply to the Women's Medical College there, which had been established in 1850 as one of the few medical schools on the East Coast for the education of women. Once again, Alice Fletcher helped the flesh by securing scholarship funds from the U.S. Office of Indian Affairs in the Connecticut Indian Association, which is a branch of the Women's National Indian Association. I feel like I should point out that the Women's National Indian Association was first started as a petition for Congress to uphold Native American treaties, but it actually sought to, quote, civilize the Indians by encouraging Victorian values of domesticity among Indian women, and and it sponsored field jobs whose task it was to teach Native American women, quote, cleanliness and godliness, unquote. I love that they use, well, I actually hate that they use yeah. the word civilize as yeah. if they're animals. Yeah. And that they have, they feel like they have to be taught, what was it, cleanliness? Cleanliness and godliness. And godliness. All right. All right. Yeah. So, I think the, the, the right intention was there, I feel. Well, and it actually um, played to LaFleche's goals very well, because since her desire was to teach the people of her, um, her own tribe. Her tribe, hygiene, cure their ills, and treat them as a physician, it was in line with their Victorian virtues. So the association 
encouraged it and sponsored LaFleche's medical school expenses. They also paid for her housing, books, and other supplies, making her the first person to receive federal federal aid for professional education in the United States. Go FAFSA. <laughs> Actually. FAFSA, sponsor us. Yeah, play back all of my loans, please. They did request, however, that she remain single during her time at medical school and for several years after her graduation in order to focus on her practice. Okay. That was their only, like, contingency. Okay. I understand. So after two years and a three-year program, Susan LaFleche graduated in 1899, not only one year early, but as valedictorian of her class. Girl. Mm Mm-hmm. She remained in Philadelphia to complete a one-year internship, internship, and then she returned home where she was the reservation's only doctor. She was responsible for around 1,200 people, uh, and also, it is- And she's the only doctor? Uh, she was so requested among the people of the Omaha reservation that the other doctor quit. So she was the- The white one that wouldn't show up? The, well, it wasn't the same doctor, oh, oh. probably, at that point. But, um, oh, right, because she was eight at the time. Because she was eight at the time. but He'd be a really old doctor. It, it was her white counterpart that quit because she was so requested and everyone wanted to see her. Sorry about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, it is, I, I did want to point out right now that at this time in 1889, while, she, while she's doing all this amazing stuff, she's taking care of... Um, the Omaha Reservation, she's a doctor. 1,200 people. 1,200 people. Uh, as a Native American, she could not call herself a citizen under American law. And as a woman, and a Native American woman, but she could not vote either. Oh, and what year was this? So no one could, this no, was, no women could vote at this point, right? No women could vote at this point, because this was 1889. Okay. And we know that white women got the right to vote in 1920, and Native Americans, I believe, got the right to vote in... Uh, 1924. That sounds... <clears throat> you sound confident, so I believe you. Thank you. <laughs> I believe that's true. If that's not, I will correct myself next week on Corrections Corner. We're always going to be wrong, so just stay, <laughs> stay tuned. It, well, we look through so many articles, and there's so many different facts that we just kind of go there's with whatever one either pops up more or, sees, or the most seems the most reliable. Source, yeah. Uh, so, anyway... She so, all, she, what, she's not a citizen, is basically she, what they're saying. That's... Yeah, that's what... There's, she's not legally allowed to call herself a citizen. Whatever. Uh, incorrect. Uh, she often worked 20-hour workdays. Uh, her office was in the corner of the schoolyard with supplies provided by the Connecticut Indian Association. Go, Connecticut! And <laughs> she didn't only help people with their, he- with their health, she helped them with mundane tasks such as writing letters and translating documents. So she was basically their lawyer, their accountant, their priest, their political liaison, their doctor. Like, she was everything. Mom bear. Mm-hmm. Talk about talk about responsibility. Responsibility, absolutely. Uh, so in nineteen or nineteen, skipped ahead a few years in eighteen ninety four, uh, Susan LaFleche married Henry Picote. They had two sons. After her marriage, Susan settled with her husband at Bancroft, Nebraska, and set up her own private practice providing medical care for everyone. Mm-hmm. Over the next quarter of century, uh, Susan LaFleche. Fought. Wait, can I ask you a question? Yeah. How, was Henry Picote a citizen? Henry was Picote he also... was also a Native American. Okay. He was from a tribe in South Dakota. Oh, cool. Okay. And But they're they are living in Nebraska on the Omaha Reservation now. On, quote-unquote, not American soil. 
because it's a reservation. Right. So they're not still considered citizens at this point. They're not. They're not allowed to call themselves citizens. Yeah. On reserve. I'm not. I'm not sure what the laws regarding reservations. When yeah, I know that they're not considered American soil. That's why all the casinos are there because. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, I will look more into that next week and let you know. Da-da-da. She da da da. I keep throwing you off. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I love the uh, like. That's what we need. It's Beep just back, <laughs> loop, back, back, back and forth. I keep moving my hand from the place where like I save it, and so then I'm like, I already read that, or that's that's not even a word. That's just the white side of the paper. <laughs> uh, so um, she sought to educate her community about preventive medicine and other public health issues, including temperance. Alcoholism was a serious problem on the Omaha Reservation and a personal one for Pocote as her husband, Henry, was an alcoholic. Oof. Uh, she supported measures such as punishment to dissuade individuals for, from, consumption, from alcohol consumption within the Omaha community. A secret police system under her father's rule was installed which supported corporal punishment to discipline those who used alcohol. Wow. Uh, she campaigned for the Michael John Bill to become a law in January 19, 1897, which would outlaw the sale of alcohol to any re- recipient of allotted land whose property was still held in trust by the government, but it proved impossible to enforce. So, she tried, tried. but it didn't really work out most of the time for yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, her husband died from tuberculosis, amplified by his liquor habit in 1905, and there was... There were a lot of issues with land allotment because he his land was in South Dakota, or a lot of his land was in South Dakota because that's where it was from. Right. So it took her two years for the government to approve her as competent so that she could get the land that was left to her mm-hmm. and left to her sons. Wow. Yeah. It was it was a whole situation. That it, all that stuff itself is fascinating and with all the information I found out about it, I could have either talked about it with that little quip or I could have talked about it for like just like the process half of how hard it was. Just for the process. Them to... Like she had to write letters, she had to prove herself competent enough uh, to get her to get I, her land. She had to She was a doctor took care of 1200 people. I'd say she's pretty competent yeah. of anything. She her her children's land actually went to her husband's brother and she had to write and say that he was an alcoholic and to make that he was incompetent that that he was incompetent in order to make her make a case for herself as best manager for her son's money sheesh yes putting her through the ringer absolutely uh so yeah she advocated proper hygiene she advocated for the use of screen doors to keep out um disease carrying flies she yeah, that's good. also waged unpopular campaigns against communal drinking cups and religious ceremonies, which I agree with. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't get to church as often now. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. But, like, growing up, I never understood why we would pass around a cup. The same cup. I mean, I always I felt really weird yeah. drinking about it. Or drinking out of it, just because I... Yeah, a white cloth isn't getting rid of anything. You're not fooling anyone. Cold and flu season was the worst. One time so I went to a church where they had, like, little Dixie cups in, of wine. Yeah, I like that. It was great. I went... I used to sing in an Episcopal church in high school, and we would dip the wafer 
the host. (laughs) I guess the host is what the proper term is. Like there would be a gob, the goblet of wine and you would just dip your thing into it as opposed to drinking from it, which like an Oreo, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But that felt less invasive of my, yeah, you know, system, (laughs) your immune system. I, yeah. (laughs) Can't argue. Can't argue with that. So she, eventually she received enough donations to build the hospital of her dreams in the reservation town of Walt Hill, Nebraska, the first modern hospital in Thurston County. Uh, As she aged, though, her health declined. The the hospital opened in 1913. However, she was suffering from bone cancer for many months, and she passed away on September 18th, 1915. She is buried near her husband, father, mother, sisters, and brother. How old was she? She was 50. Okay. Um, The reservation hospital remained a hospital until 1940. It is now a community center slash museum dedicated to the work of Susan LaFleche Picote in the history of the Omaha and Winnebago tribes. It's named after Picote and was declared a National Historic Landmark. Landmark. Did you say Landmartin? I said Landmartin. (laughs) I did. I did. That's the name of the land shark. It's early. Um, it was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1993. The hospital was also... Is that the year you were born? I was born in 1994. Oh, same. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the hospital was also named as one of the 11 most endangered places of 2018 by the National Trust. However, work is underway to raise funds for its restoration. Endangered meaning, like... That it's, they don't have enough money to uphold it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they're working on it. They're working on it. They're working Good, to raise Good, it's a national money. landmark. Mm-hmm. So, in recent years, because of poor patient care by the Federal Indian Health Service, uh, it's hurt the Winnebago Hospital, which today serves both the Omaha and Winnebago tribes, but a source from the tribe mentions more access to health care is on the way, and LaFleche would, quote, be very proud of what we're doing right now. Last summer, the Omaha tribe broke ground on both an $8.3 million expansion of the Carl T. Curtis Health Education Center in Macy and a new clinic in Walt Hill. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that was Susan LaFleche Picote. And I have never heard of her, and I'm so sad about that. Right? She's, I mean, she was amazing. Her whole life was fascinating. And she still has an impact today. People are, I mean, it's, yeah, they're still holding that as a high... I would, of high importance because I, of her. I would love to visit that museum. Like it, it amazes me how important she was to history, and how like it makes me excited for the rest of this podcast and to learn more about more people like this. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. yay! That was really good, Haley. Thank you. Yours was very good too. Thanks. You're welcome. Should we do a little? Each do a little side story of what inspired us in our personal lives this week? Yes, let's do that. Okay. You want me to start? I do want you to start. (laughs) Okay. So, Haley already heard this story, but for those of you listening at home, uh, a few nights ago, I, when I got off of work, I was done at like 8.30 p.m., I walked down to Eric's restaurant where he was serving because he was going to be working for a few more hours. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'll just go sit and, you know, order some dinner and wait for him to be done. I brought my book with me. I was just kind of expecting to have, like, a quiet night there waiting for him. And the restaurant was pretty crowded, so I ended up sitting at the bar. And I sat, like, 
next to, there was a seat in between us, but I sat next to an older woman, probably in her 70s. Um, and at one point I was helping her give like menu suggestions because I overheard like her asking a lot of questions to the mm -hmm. bartender and the bartender was a little bit busy and I've eaten at his restaurant like a number of times. So I was just kind of giving her suggestions about what to get on the menu and we ended up chatting a bit throughout the night and ended up having like this really lovely conversation and just talked about like things, you know, I wasn't even thinking about, we talked about like TV shows and mm -hmm. just about all the kind she was she grew up in England, but she was Jamaican, mm -hmm. and but she's traveled like all over all these countries, and so we had this really lovely conversation, and kind of time flew by, and I didn't even realize how fast, how long we had been there, but she went to get her check, and she, before she paid, she turned to me, and she hugged me, and she, it was so sweet, she just thanked me for talking with her, and said that, you know, at her age, it can get really lonely, mm. and that to, you know, to have someone just like kind of a stranger talk to her and like keep her entertained when she was just expecting to have to go get dinner by herself Aww. and like I also I mean have been I mean not to the same extent but like we moved here without knowing anybody else like mm -hmm. I I feel like because I've been recently going through the understanding that like it can get really lonely mm -hmm. sometimes even if you have great people surrounded by you I was just coming from that mindset and so it made her really happy and then it made me really happy and she paid for my dinner and her name was June, and she was Aww. a lovely lady, and it just inspired me to remember that everyone is, everyone feels lonely, everyone's, like, doing their own thing, mm -hmm. and that kindness can only help. Oh, I love that. So, that was my little thing this week. I love that. that I know you, I already knew that story, but yeah. it still just made me happy to hear it again. Yeah. <laughs> it was happy, it was nice to relive it. Yeah. it was such a nice one. She was so sweet. Aww. June. Mm-hmm. Shout out June. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine happened New Year's Day, actually, okay. and this is, this is just like a kind of something fun that happened. So I went with my boyfriend, Jake, to our friend's parents' house in the middle of Indiana, and he, like, it was his mom, his dad, his little brother, and his brother's girlfriend, and there were a bunch of us, like, all of our friends were there, too, and his brother actually meant to propose. Is this... Is this uh, Jake's brother or the friend's the friend's friend. brother okay the friend's brother um and the brother meant to propose the New Year's Eve but things didn't work out it was super rainy he wanted to do it outside and so the next day they went to go do that our friends went to help him set up and to like get the proposal ready and the rest of us stayed at his parents house and got everything set up and like his mom went the store and bought uh, balloons and roses mm -hmm. and the other guys that were there went out to the front yard because they had this beautiful huge yard they're like kind of in the middle of a wooded area and they got sticks and leaves and they set up a thing on um, the front lawn with like a heart and their names on it and Aww. like congrats it was so, so this cute. was for when they came home after he proposed yeah and it was just like I this was my first time meeting my our friend's family and mm -hmm. it was just it was really nice it made me feel super excited just to see everyone get so excited about this like collective thing that didn't really affect the rest of us at all yeah. but it was we were so excited to like help and do that and it was just awesome it's the beginning of their lives and together i know it was just really cool to get to see that's awesome mm -hmm. I love a good proposal story. I love a good proposal story. If you have good proposal stories... 
Oh, send them in. I will absolutely read it. I want to tell them. That's inspiring. I'll probably cry. I will definitely cry. (laughs) Okay, well. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Inspired But Tired. We made it, everyone. (laughs) We did the thing. We did it. Uh, Tune in next week for more. So stay inspired. And wake up. (laughs) Bye.